Welcome to the Remarkable Relationship Show with Mercy Russell, where we find the wonder in your story. I will be your host for the next hour. I have over 35 years of experience applying the science of relationship systems to my practice of psychotherapy and leadership consulting. My intuitive skills allow me to bring clarity and vision to your challenges. I hope you will be surprised in the next hour. Hello, this is Mercy Russell with Remarkable Relationship Show, and I'm here today um, with um, Shannon Fletcher. Um, Shannon is a life coach and sober companion, and the topic of our show is self-discovery and recovery. I think we'll probably scatter out a bit from that. But today, Shannon and I will talk about her journey into 31 years of sobriety, management of her family relationships along the way, and her spiritual awakening. In this show, my goal is to bring a fresh perspective to you on all things related to how humans develop their individual brilliance while navigating the excitement, stickiness, and resistance in their relationships. In my 39 years of working as a psychotherapist, I have been continually amazed at the ways in which people overcome challenges. Today, I hope to share Shannon's experiences, insights, and the magic in her story. So um, Shannon and I met while working together at Soberman's Estate a recovery retreat for executive and professional men in Cave Creek, Arizona. We attend a women's meeting of alcohol, Alcoholics Anonymous together and have become friends. I asked Shannon to join me today to share her deep experience with the spiritual gifts of a life in recovery. Shannon was 21 when she embraced sobriety. She has been married twice and has had two children in a life of recovery. Part of what I hope to um, talk about today is also how this, her sobriety has impacted her family life. And um, I hope to do that by showing the contrast between what she's accomplished and actually some stories from my own family. Now, I just wanna make one just clarification for for the for you my audience um just i don't want to assume that everyone understands the terms that we'll be using sobriety and recovery are not the same thing technically a sober person does not drink or use non-prescribed mind-altering drugs sobriety is a physical state it means i'm clean of alcohol or drugs Recovery, on the other hand, is a process of gaining emotional maturity through continual self-reflection, self-correction, making amends when necessary, and holding oneself accountable to a mentor. One can be clean of alcohol and drugs and not sober. An alcoholic who is sober with bad behavior, similar to their behavior when they were drinking, is referred to as a dry drunk. A sober alcoholic who practices a program of recovery 
aims for emotional sobriety. Shannon has 31 years in recovery, which is remarkable at any age. Through her commitment to sobriety, she has not only weathered, but grown through adversity. She has applied a set of principles, including the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, that allow her to meet daily challenges with grace and equanimity. In this first segment, we will review Shannon's path before sobriety. So Shannon, let's just start with the landscape of your family. Um, and so I'm gonna, we're gonna just sort of talk about the brief history of your fam the family you grew up in and your own family, your nuclear family. So um, just could you start by telling us sort of, I guess when you began let's just say drinking and using drugs, because that is the beginning of the path of recovery. Yes. Hi, Mercy. Thank Hi. you for on your show. Um, my path started, I, actually, I was, um, when I was growing up, I uh, was in a family that was known for um, having a little bit of wine at dinner time. It wasn't unusual for a young person at the dinner table to have a very small glass of wine. So I was always kind of around alcohol. I grew up around alcohol. Um, my grandfather drank and my mom drank. Um, so it was very prevalent around me. Um, and then I started drinking um, where I was going out and actually seeking it when I was about 13. And um, that started with me and my best friend. And I think what it did for me, it was, it fulfilled a lot of holes that I was feeling about myself um, at a very young age. So I was feeling very disconnected from um, who I was. I didn't know who I was, but I also was very scared of people. Um, I didn't feel good enough. I didn't feel accepted in a lot of situations. So alcohol for me was something that kind of fixed those things. Mm -hmm. So very young age, I was um, dabbling in drinking, which started off just as a fun sort of like, let's do this again every weekend thing. Um, so Shannon, one thing I'm, too, is that you, you do, you come from a family, as you say, where there was regular social drinking, but there were other people in your, you know, in your family, your parents or grandparents who were alcoholic. Correct. Correct. So just to say, it's, it's really common that someone who come, we come in with a certain, you know, attraction to or physiology or reaction physically to alcohol that feeds into exactly these dynamics that you're talking about. Yes, correct. Yeah. yeah. It wasn't something you invented, let's put it that way. No, it wasn't. So um, as they say, uh, uh, alcoholism is a, is a progressive disease. And um, for me, my journey started off just as having fun with people from my school. Um, I also sought out uh, companions that were much older than myself, uh, which was not probably a good thing, but um, I started to slip in school and things started to you know progress where um, I was getting in trouble quite a bit, including in the home <clears throat> and at school. So there was that. And then um, by the time I was 16, I, I had come into a, a place where I thought that 
I could probably live on my own. And um, I, I, you know, took the privilege of uh, trying to leave home at such a young age. And um, I wound up running away from home when I was 16. So I was very young um, when I left home and um, pretty much due to my, my alcoholism use, you know, um, I didn't like authority. And uh, the more my mom tried to control me or help me, I, I just didn't want any part of that. So anyways, I uh, wound up living um, in New York City. I, I was from Rochester, um, Rochester, New York. And I went uh, to New York City where I started off living on the streets because I didn't um, have any means of how to, you know, where to live or money. And um, so, you know, I did that for about six months. And then I started working in the nightclubs back in the 80s, the big nightclubs, um, places like the Limelight and the Palladium, and um, became a bartender at a really young age. I was about 17. And um, of course, then, you know, being a bartender brings on a whole other realm of drugs and being introduced to drugs. Um, so drugs are a part of my story, even though I identify as an alcoholic. So that, that's where it really took off. And that's where my um, disease really manifested to the point where I started to lose a lot of myself and um, not be able to control it anymore. Uh, there was no controlling uh, the alcohol anymore. I always tried to, there was always, um, I was always trying to set boundaries for myself, but I was always crossing those boundaries. So, so Shannon, one thing I want to point out um, is, yes, so this sounds kind of chaotic. It sounds dark. At the same time that you were on your own in New York City as a 16-year-old, you attended and completed high school. I did. While oh, you're I working in bars and drinking and using drugs. Now, you know, so, so you continued and at 18 graduated with a high school degree. I did. Just want to point out that yes, but underneath this, you, there was some strength and stability that you were able to stay focused on that goal for yourself. Well, I promised myself when I left home that I was going to complete my high school diploma. Um, and I didn't let that much time uh, elapse. I, I got right into a high school and I did graduate on time and I did, it wasn't a GED. It was a high, I went to a high school um, and I promised myself that that was something I was going to continue with. So I did accomplish that. That was one of my early accomplishments. Yes. Okay. So you're working in bars underage. <laughs> how <laughs> did you, in the how, 80s, they didn't, they didn't check. <laughs> right. But how did you feel safe? I mean, as a young woman in New York city, it's a pretty fast life. And um, yeah, I mean, what was, well, some of the company that I kept um, was, um, people who were high profile people, people like mafia people, um, but they protected me. So I always sort of felt safe. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and I, I frequented, obviously, if I wasn't working in the nightclubs, I was always going to them on my nights off. So I, I always felt sort of protected. I never, of course, when you're young too, you have that um, invisible, like nothing's gonna happen to me going, you know, mentality, which, Probably wasn't the best thing to have, but you know, worked right. out. Right. So then, um, 
then something happened that created a crisis for you? Yeah. Uh, when I was 19, um, I had a, a boyfriend who committed suicide um, when I was home. And so that created a trauma event for me um, because that was something that I had a very, well, anybody would have a hard time processing, right? So mm -hmm. for me, um, of course, I turned more to the alcohol um, which turned into an everyday drinker to drinking morning, noon, and night. Um, and that's sort of where my bottom took place, where I had gone to a place that I thought I'd never go. But I, I realized that I was headed for death. I mean, I really did. I thought, you know, I was very young, but I thought, I'm not going to live to see 25. Like, this is my thoughts when I was, you know, 20 years old. And, um, you know, and I, if I would have kept on that path, I believe that that probably uh, would have happened. You know, I probably wouldn't have survived. But that was probably the catalyst, the event, if there isn't, you know, an yeah. event, that would be the one that did it for me. And so um, as a result, you, you went back to Rochester. You went back to your mother's. Is that correct? I did. I went to regroup. Yeah. Uh, to go home. Um, I think they knew something, uh, my, my stepdad and my mom knew there was things going on with me that I wasn't speaking of. And, um, she decided, my mom decided that, you know, maybe you should go live with your father for a little while to have a little break, um, to be in a different city. So my, my father and his wife, long-term wife lived in, um, San Diego. So I, I wound up moving to San Diego right, right when I turned about 21. So, yeah. So it's about time for us to take a break. And um, I think this is a good time to take a break because the next part of your story starts there in San Diego. Um, I do want to just mention that there are certain parallels in your family background and mine that I think I hope to just point out to exemplify to people the power of sobriety with the contrast. So thank you, Shannon. And uh, now we'll take a break and we'll be back in a few minutes to talk about your, your, um, your decision to, go, to be sober. Alternative Talk 1150. We're on your radio at 1150 AM. We're on your HD radio at 98.9 Channel 3. So many ways to listen. We're on the web at 1150kknw.com. Streaming live audio and video as well as MP3 archives of many of our shows. So many ways to listen. And now, we're on your smartphone or tablet. Download our free app in the Apple App Store or Google Play and take Alternative Talk 1150 anywhere you go. So many ways to listen. Hi, tune in to my new show, The Remarkable Relationship Show, with me, Mercy Russell. I bring a fresh perspective on all things related to how humans develop their individual brilliance while navigating the excitement, stickiness, and resistance in their relationships. Wednesdays from 9 to 10 a.m., and you can visit my website at leadershipwithmercy.com. What is hope? Hope to me was just that he would get to come home. I had no idea how hard it would be once he got back. I wish she'd stop drinking so much. She thinks it's helping, but it's not. I hope she sees that soon. I act like I don't care if he comes to my games. 
but I hope he does. I used to hope he'd find happiness again. Now I hope our marriage makes it. I hope Grandpa will get help. He thinks it's too late, but it's not. With everything that he's going through, I hope he sees a counselor. I just want my brother back. I hoped he'd get help. Stop hoping things would get better on their own. He told me to stop asking. I didn't. Then one day he asked for a ride. Hope is knowing there are other families just like yours, that the veterans they love got help and recovered. Go to maketheconnection.net and turn hope into action. Have something important to say? Want to help improve our world? Need to promote your business uniquely and effectively? KKNW is the answer. Our staff helps broadcasters and podcasters create professional-sounding audio. Bring your talent and let our experts help you craft a radio show or podcast that best delivers your message. Learn more at 1150kknw.com. That's 1150kknw.com. KKNW, talk variety that's live and local. Bored with the other stations? Hammering away on the same old talking points? Try Alternative Talk 1150 and get some variety. Hello, this is Mercy Russell with The Remarkable Relationship Show, and I'm here today with Shannon Fletcher. Um, she's just told us uh, we're talking about recovery and sobriety um, from alcoholism and addiction and the influence on one's life and one's spiritual awakening. Um, so Shannon was just telling us about her adolescence um, and her and her sort of a rapid descent into drinking and drug use, which happens sometimes with people. It's sort of fast and furious. Um, but despite this turmoil, she was, you were, Shannon, were able to make the decision to return to your parents. Um, and then, so in this segment, I want to talk about your early recovery. Um, so we left you off at going to stay with your father in San Diego. Um, yeah. So then, so what, what came about that you um, decided to stop drinking? So just tell us what happened. Well, I think um, it was obvious that my um, <clears throat> drinking had uh, progressed to a point where um, I was not very functional person. I, there's there's non-functional and then there's functional alcoholics, right? And I was definitely mm -hmm. one of the non-functional. I wasn't able to do a lot of uh, everyday things that normal people do. Um, but my father and I didn't have much of a relationship when I had showed up in San Diego. Um, he was a little bit absent, well, a lot absent actually from my life up until that point. And we wound up um, in an argument one night. It was a very heavy argument. And I had a lot of resentment towards my father um, for not being there growing up. And um, I decided in a, you know, while drinking, of course, that I was going to tell him how I felt about him, which um, was very negative and um, it, it caused a huge impact on him and it caused him to realize himself that um, that he needed help as well so my father was really the catalyst in my life because um, he got sober first he decided that um, he was going to go get help and his help was um, Alcoholics Anonymous and then I, I followed shortly after and the event really was kind of um more of an emotional bottom for me. I decided um, one night I was home, you know, he was out at a meeting, an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. He came home, kissed me goodnight on the forehead, went upstairs, and I was left alone in the dark downstairs, and I was drinking, and I had that moment of clarity where I thought, 
I didn't want um, to live this life anymore. And I don't mean that in a way of I wanted to check out. I just wanted to change. And I, but I wasn't sure about what I was going to, how I was going to do that. And um, so I uh, took all the alcohol in the house and I dumped it. And I just made a promise to myself that I don't know what it was going to take, but I was not going to, this was not going to be my life. I was not going to be dead at 25, like I thought. And um, so I uh, decided that I, I put down the alcohol. Um, I had this moment of clarity where I saw myself for the first time, really saw myself as the first time. And it was not, it was not attractive. It wasn't anything of how I expected my life to be or how I wound up. Um, so I just, I'd made the decision. And so what that looked like for me was I had to detox and I didn't know back then that alcohol and, um, also benzos, I found out later on are things that can, uh, cause you to have seizures and die. And, you know, detoxing with those is very dangerous. And I didn't know that, but I did detox myself in my father's home. And, um, I did eventually after, a few weeks, I went to my father and I told him that I thought I had a problem. And of course he was very, um, he was receptive, but he was also like, oh no, you know, my daughter is coming to me with this problem, right? And um, so I think he felt a big responsibility to do the right thing. And um, he did, and he had brought me to a woman who, a, a girl who was my age at the time, I was 21, and um, his business partner had a daughter who was sober. She was going to AA, and um, he brought me to her, and I kind of clung to her, you know, for as like a life raft in the storm, mm -hmm. right, to show me the way. And um, this girl showed me, you know, she took me to meetings. Um, they were young people's meetings, you know. I had to find my tribe, you know, this is what we say is you have to find the right, the right meetings and the right people, just like you found the right, you know, nightclub and the right bars, you know, right. and so um, it's the same. Yeah. I just want to point out one thing for our audience, which is that <clears throat> this moment of clarity that you talked about, I, you know, I, I sort of, um, I always want to look for something bigger, but what I've found for myself and listening to, I'm sure, well over a thousand stories of alcoholics is that that switch and that decision is something that's very internal. Yeah. And I have never seen a pattern of the external circumstances or relationship patterns that make a difference. It's something I even call ineffable, where you describe it really beautifully. It's just one, one of those nights sitting in the dark drinking, you get, you get clarity. I just want to point that out, that it's just, it's very much an internal um, experience. I mean, maybe, maybe a higher power involved, we get to that, but at the same time, it's very individual for each person. It's very, yeah. And I've been asked that just working in the field, I've been asked that many times what made you get sober and they're looking for the event but i'm looking for the emotion behind it and for me it was emotional it wasn't i didn't have things to lose per se i didn't have i did have consequences but my um outside circumstances were you know i was still very young i didn't have a lot to lose at that time but um yeah i i definitely was on a path of um i want to i want to get this and it, the internal thing it was like a switch turned off and you know it turned on just turned on and i decided 
I'm, mm-hmm. I'm going to change my life. And, and ever since then, I, you know, it was, it's been a journey though, you know, it's yeah. been quite a journey. So tell us a little bit more about that. You had a friend, you were going to meetings, you got a sponsor, is that correct? I did. There was a woman um, who was kind of close to my age and she had three years of sobriety and these women, these young girls that I was hanging out with kind of promoted me to her. They thought you guys have very similar stories. Now, what women did for me, because when I was out there drinking and using, I didn't hang out with a lot of women. I hung out with the men. And so for me, it it helped me build relationships, healthy relationships with women. Um, So that was something that was new to me. But this woman, you know, I got a relationship with her and I was also accountable with her. I became accountable to somebody. Um, And that was another thing that was um, part of a great opening for me because I've never had that connection before. And so um, I did, I started to uh, listen to some of her suggestions, um, which uh, were part of, you know, going to meetings and checking in with her regularly and doing what we call the 12 steps um, of Alcoholics Anonymous. So my journey kind of started there and that's where my transformation began. Um, So let me see, just tell me, tell us a little bit about what how your life changed you so you talked of you use the expression being gently led which i really liked because you know both recovery from addiction and i believe spiritual awakening are often very a quiet what looks from the outside like a quiet series and steps of events that had then add up in a big way so Tell us a little bit about that, your expression being gently led. Well, I think things fell into place for me um, very nicely and very easily, sort of. I mean, maybe not easily, but they seemed to fall in front of me at the right time, at the right moments. And um, I believe that's what I consider a higher power. However, when I first came into the program, uh, I was I was an atheist, so I had a very hard time with the word God or higher power. Um, so that was something that I needed to, I had to find my own journey with that, which I did. And it started, um, it started with my sponsor. You know, she was the one who sort of had to point things out to me as they were happening to sort of um, show me that, hey, you know, this is, things don't happen just by coincidence. I mean, look at this event or that event. And so... I started, she wanted me to use the group as a whole, you know, the program AA as a whole, or believe that she believed um, that there was something bigger than ourselves out there. She also brought me to the ocean one day because we lived near um, the beach in California. And um, she asked me to stop a wave, you know, and I looked at her and I said, okay, I see your point. Clearly we can't stop the wave, but it is a force bigger than ourselves. And um, so I sort of used it as a place to go to to just sit and rest and be quiet and um, pray, you know, as we talk, you know, when you're praying, you're talking to God and when you're meditating, you're listening. Right. So um, that was a place for me, a quiet place that I really enjoyed. And and that's where it started for me. That's where my spiritual journey started. Mm -hmm. Um, So what has, this is, I don't, this is sort of a big question. I don't know if you can answer it sort of quickly, but um, what 
what is it that's kept you engaged with uh, a path of recovery and you're still active in, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous 31 years later? Um, mm -hmm. This is not something you've grown out of. And I'm just, could you talk a little bit about that for, you know, I think for our audience? Well, it's definitely um, a daily reprieve. Um, it's something that I do every day. I have, there are certain, I always say that, you know, sobriety um, is rented and rent is due every day. And it's like, what are you going to do to, what are you putting in your insurance box every day to make sure that mm -hmm. it keeps you away from that drink, right? So for me, it's really not about drinking anymore. It's more about how I respond to life and my behaviors um, and things like that. The drink was only a symptom of my, my underlying issues. But um, for me, I believe that um, I've always I've always kept in touch with a higher power. That's the one thing that I feel keeps me from a drink is my higher power. They, they talk about it in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous that you will have no mental defense against the first drink. And that was grilled into me from a very, very early age in sobriety. And so I've always kept that. I've always sort of um, talked to my higher power and um, I learned later about meditation and things like that. But I also do things like I still go to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I don't maybe go as, to as many as I used to when I first started, but I still go. I still work with other people um, in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and um, talk with them. And so it's a connection for me. You know, that's what keeps me connected and level-headed. Um, so, so for me, that, that's sort of the things that I do. Right. I wanted to point out, because I do want to, in our next segment, talk about your spiritual, you know, more of your spiritual experiences. But I just want to point out, too, that um, in sobriety, you've been married twice, divorced twice, you have two children, um, they're, they're grown, and they're living with their father. <laughs> so these are, and in the meantime, your uh, father moved, and you and your mother who divorced him when you were you know less than a year old moved to where your father was to care for him as he was dying of cancer is that correct is that is correct yes so i i think what i want to point out is that <clears throat> you were able and now you live with your mother and we have had talked about that but you have been able to stay in contact with your family, have genuine emotional relationships with them, set clear boundaries with them, um, make decisions for you and for your children that have promoted their, their, their uh, growth. You have good relationships with them. Obviously, you're in contact with your ex-husbands. Um, I just want to point this out to our audience that these are really... Um, uh, these are significant events. I have similar dynamics in my family that do not have this pattern of restoration. And yeah, maybe you live with your mother and, you know, the two of you aren't always the best of friends, but you have a way of staying clear with her, you know, and whatever her life is like and the choices that she's made. So I, to me, in my perspective from family systems, this is the picture of 
emotional health. We don't get to choose the circumstances in our life. We grow through our relationships, which yeah. is why here we are. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I too am divorced, married and divorced twice with two children. And, you know, so it's not, and it's interesting, both your, your grandmother was married three times and my grandmother was married three times. Yeah. And my mother was divorced once. And so um, these are not, tragedies in families they're patterns and they can but the difference is sobriety that you have that isn't that that pattern of sobriety is not in the generations above me and my family and it's made a big difference so um i think uh benny are we close to a break here yeah more than happy to take one if you wish okay let's take one and then we'll come back and i you know want to hear you know, some of your juicy stories of spirituality. (laughs) Do you make a positive difference in the world? Do you have a talent, philosophy, base of knowledge, product or service that you know could help a lot of people if only you could reach them? Join Alternative Talk 1150's family of broadcasters and start walking down a fruitful path. As host of your very own program, dial 425-653-1150 and find out just how affordable it can be to have a show on 1150 AM. That's 425-653-1150. Alternative Talk, we have an opportunity waiting just for you. Hi, tune in to my new show, The Remarkable Relationship Show, with me, Mercy Russell. I bring a fresh perspective on all things related to how humans develop their individual brilliance while navigating the excitement, stickiness, and resistance in their relationships. Wednesdays from 9 to 10 a.m. And you can visit my website at leadershipwithmercy.com. Some may see a sprinter. At the NFHS, we see a future leader already off to the races. Some may see a volleyball player. One hit! Way to go, girl! At the NFHS, we see a spike in confidence that will help her achieve her potential. What else do we see? Musicians learning to march to their own beat. We're the NFHS the national leader and advocate for high school athletics and activities in America, helping today's teenagers develop the skills they need to become tomorrow's leaders. And we see it happening in communities across Washington every single day. Learn more about the NFHS commitment to youth at NFHS.org. This message presented by the NFHS, the National Federation of State High School Associations. Alternative Talk 1150 is your sports organization's safe bet when it comes to airing your team's games. Our players are all seasoned professionals when it comes to sports programming. Imagine your games being heard on local radio. Your team deserves the MVP treatment. Call 425-653-1150 today to learn how affordable and fun it is to broadcast your games on the radio. Call 425-653-1150 and make your next season something special. That's 425-653-1150. Hello, this is Mercy Russell with the Remarkable Relationships Show, and I'm back today with Shannon Fletcher, a life coach and sober companion. Um, And we've been talking about her story, her family. And in this segment, um, I want to ask you have you know have Shannon share with you the her 
her, her spiritual awakening along the path of her 31 years of sobriety. Um, I'm just going to frame it by saying um, that, you know, it's a day by day affair, but these day by day events add up and can be quite end up in very surprising and um, almost otherworldly experiences. Um, but they're embedded in a very firm foundation of good living. So, so Shannon, you told us a little bit about the condition of your spirituality when you stopped drinking, an atheist leaning into your sponsor's idea of a higher power. Um, you were young to be, many older people still grapple with that. So, um, so can you talk about what changed? How did you discover and begin to believe in a higher power? You know, I think at the very beginning, it was the action of just going to the beach and talking to a higher power. It was the action piece that um, sort of brought it to light a little bit because I started feeling different. I started, and plus I had my sponsor too, to point out when things were starting to happen positive in my life, she was there to sort of say, you know, look at, look at what's happening over here. And it's because I was living an honest life again and I was trying to be a better person and I was um, asking my higher power for guidance um, in my life and in, in, in direction. And that seemed to, for me, start something where um, I started to believe that there was something else out there that was bigger than mm -hmm. myself. Can you tell us about some of those little events that your sponsor pointed out to you that you might not have seen otherwise? There were just little, little things. Like I had a lot of limiting beliefs when I was um, young in sobriety. And I, I always thought, oh, I'm not good enough to do that. Or, oh, I can't do that. Or I'm not smart enough to do that. And um, she always taught me, you know, suit up and show up for life, you know, and, and just take the action and the rest will follow, you know, if it's, if it's meant to be, it will happen. And then there were a lot of those, um, there were a lot of those events that happened and it starts off real small. Like it started for me with trying to even just find a place to live, or, um, it was trying to find a job to support myself, you know, to be supporting in my, my own contributions. And, um, those were the little things that started happening for me uh, that I started to notice that, oh, okay, you know, I'm taking the action, but you know, the result is going to be up to a higher power. It's in, you know, and if it's meant to be, it's meant to be, it will happen. Right. And so I, I have the small things pointed out at the beginning. Um, and it was very important that they were pointed out because I was sort of resistant, if you will, to, you know, I, I kind of was still looking for that, oh, see, this isn't working, you know, and it just seemed that every time I tried to do that, there was always something there that proved it wrong, so. How about telling the story about making amends, how you went home to make amends, and Charles? So I had um, a, most of my amends, which is the ninth step that we do in Alcoholics Anonymous is. Um, Can you just say what you just describe a little bit for people who may not be familiar what it what that means to make amends? Well, you you go and you go to the people that you had harmed during your drinking or using, and it's an apology, but it's also 
apologies don't really mean anything. It's also about changed behavior. So there's different types of amends. I mean, there's amends that you make financially. Um, some people owe money because they stole or weren't honest with things. Um, I didn't really have any of that, but um, I did have to make amends to my family and to my close friends. Um, so uh, one of my biggest amends and hardest amends was I had to um, write a letter to the boyfriend who passed away because I felt very responsible um, for his death. And um, after he died, you know, I wasn't, um, I wasn't invited to the funeral and that's a whole other backstory there, but um, I was going to his grave all the time and I would sometimes sleep there. And there was a groundskeeper who, um, his name was Charlie, and he was a, a gentleman who kind of watched out for me. You know, he um, came to give me water sometimes or just come to talk to me to make sure I was okay or brought me a blanket or, you know, those kinds of things were happening. And, um, you know, when I, fast forwarding, when I got sober and I, um, one of the things my sponsor had me do was to write a letter to that boyfriend and go to his grave and um, say my amends to him. And I remember going to the grounds, I guess it was like a chapel that they had there on the grounds. Um, there was somebody there who kind of oversees, you know, the cemetery. And um, I remember going in there and asking for Charlie and um, the woman just looked at me like I was from outer space. She's like, I don't know who you're talking about. And I'm describing him and I'm telling him, I, I said, his name's Charlie. He's this tall. He's an African-American man. I said, um, he, he's, he worked here. And she said, I'm sorry, ma'am. There is nobody here who um, fits that description or anybody named Charlie that has ever worked here. So that to me <laughs> was... Another thing pointed out actually that I feel he was an angel because I don't know where he was or who, who he was or where he came from, but for that portion of my life, he had showed up um, in these moments, right? But I never, I never found Charlie again. I don't know what happened. Um, so uh, I don't know. It was just another confirmation that there are things going on beyond what sometimes we see. Um, so I feel that that was a very significant event when I look back on it now. I think it's, it's not uncommon in stories of recovery that when people look back, you were still using and drinking then, right? You hadn't, you hadn't, you know, whatever, you hadn't been saved yet. And that people can look back and see, you might, the hand of the higher power, even while they were drinking. Right. And this wasn't even someone telling you to stop drinking. It was someone comforting you, you know, at a difficult time or, you know, something or an angel. And um, what I, I just want to, uh, I, the Mormons have a lovely term for this. They call it a tender mercy. Mm -hmm. um, and um, at any rate, I do think that for anyone, uh, an addict or not, it's possible to look back at troubled times in your life and see how you were supported, how things that looked like a crisis were really, you know, the hand of a higher power nudging you along a better path. Um, so at any rate, I'd also like to talk to you or ask you, you've talked about your third eye opening and discovering psychic abilities. How did that come about? And how do you, how do you understand that or experience that? 
Um, I've always sort of had a little bit of um, clairvoyance. Um, I, I, I recognized it when I was very young. I didn't really know what it was though until I, I became older, a little bit older and in my early sobriety. Um, but like the opening of the eye, it's, you're just aware, you have an awareness of things going on around you, um, some things that you can't see or explain, but I definitely um, have that ability. And my, my relationship with my higher power um, has changed quite a bit, obviously, over the years. I mean, from when I was 31 years ago until today, I have a very different connection and um, outlook um, and view with my higher power. Um, and I, I pretty much like to connect with, you know, being connected with nature. Um, I also believe that my higher power talks through other people. It could be conversations I'm having, like things are placed in front of me um, that kind of just confirm, you know, that they could be conversations, they could be just signs of something or a path opening up for me, um, that there is, you know, something out there that is guiding me. Um, and I've just connected to that, you know, I'm connected to that now. So, and I know everybody doesn't have the same view as I do. Everybody has their own relationship with their higher power, whether that be through religion or through a program or just self, you know, exploration. For me, it was just self-exploration. And I just found out that, um, I, I believe that God is everywhere. That's my belief. And I believe it, that he talks through people and events, um, and just things, signs, it could be just a sign, you know. Can you give us, can you give us an example? People love to hear the, the details. Um, I, I just want to say that when, you know, you and I met working together and, you know, in this, you know, 11 bed, you know, treatment center. And of course, I just got to know you mostly in terms of the work we did. And we, I knew we shared this background and, um, but I always loved it when I'd be talking or I'd, you know, kind of be blabbing about something I thought was sort of out of the range of, you know, the therapy we were doing or the framework we were working in. And you go, oh yeah, I know that. I've had that experience. And then you'd sort of lead me down that I'd go, whoa, Shannon. <laughs> so I love that. I mean, that's just my, you know, experience of, you know, just all the things we don't know about those people around us. So I really want to can you give us some, you know, specific examples of how this has worked in your life? Well, I think um, coming into actually the field, even just the field that I'm in right now, like I'm in behavioral health and that journey started for me about six, about six or seven years ago now. And, you know, I was again at a place in my life where there was a turning point where I wanted something different. I wanted a new career. I wanted to be fulfilled in what I was doing. Um, and I wasn't fulfilled in what I was doing prior. And I thought, you know, I'm just going to explore this. And I put it out there actually to my higher power and said, you know, please guide me. I remember I um, had sent my resumes out to a bunch of different um, types of things that I thought would be interesting. One of them being was working in a rehab. And um, that was the first phone call that I received actually when I had sent my resume out was this rehab called. And I thought, okay, why not? And um, 
I went with it. And even though the pay was not of what I was expecting, I thought, you know what, I'm just going to leave the money out of it. And I'm just going to focus on if this is something that I really enjoy, if it's going to, you know, give me fulfillment and if I can actually help other people. And so once I gave that a chance, I found that um, it was the right fit and I, I really enjoyed it and loved it. And I think that would be an example of um, just, you know, asking, you know, your higher power for direction. Um, and then that path opening, you know, I, I did the footwork to do that, but, you know, that door opened, you know, they say, if you knock on a hundred doors, one of them's going to open. Right. Mm -hmm. So, but you didn't have to knock on a hundred. So that's sort of the brilliance. Right? I think I knocked on seven and then <laughs> one of them opened, but it was all good. And um, yeah. since then there's been those types of events have happened for me, especially recently um, in the last year, a little over a year now I've been doing um, sober companioning and recovery coaching, which is a different level in, in behavioral health. And I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to do that because um, I don't know. I just thought I, I, I didn't really know what it entailed, but you know, again, I knocked on some doors. Um, I put it out there. I learned what I could from the things that I had already, the places I had already worked. And I took that knowledge and I just started knocking on doors, sending out resumes and, you know, calling people. And sure enough, you know, the doors are wide open now. So, I mean, I believe that that has something to do with, mm -hmm. you know, having a little help from above, you know what I mean? Right, right. Um, so another story you've told me in the past that I think is also a really, uh, I personally think it's a really good example of living in emotional sobriety and having a spiritual foundation has to do with your children and um, your when you, your decision to move out of state, this was after your divorce and then what happened after that and then how it how you see it now? Um, yeah, that was uh, my children. Um, one thing I, I do pride myself on is that my children have never seen their mother um, drunk um, or in my addiction. They've only known a sober mom, which is great. My son's 20 and my daughter will be 17 this July, but um, I have been a very open and honest relationship with them. I've chosen to share a lot of my life, not, not all the gory details, but a lot of um, my addiction with them. Uh, I've taught them a lot about addiction. And um, as a result of that, and just being an example for them and how I present myself in life, they've watched me. And uh, my son actually did come to me. Um, it was last Mother's Day. And he said, Mom, I just want to thank you for um, being open and honest in your life, because it's helped me to uh, make better decisions in my own. And I felt that that was a very positive reinforcement that, you know, I must be doing something right, mm -hmm. you know, but, um, you know, my children, I, I had a not great um, divorce from their father. Um, we wound up divorcing after 11 years of marriage and my kids were fairly small still back then. And um, I stayed with them three years, three years after the divorce, I lived down the street, but, you know, I was a single mom who hadn't really had much of a career um, or a recent job experience. So my financial situation wasn't great and I wasn't getting any help actually from the husband, ex-husband. So um, I wound up having to rely on my mother and my mother kind of stepped in to help me out. Um, and she moved in with us for a little while, but it was a little bit much. I mean, living in Los Angeles and my mom trying to float a boat down in San Diego with an, a condo that wasn't working. Um, and she was in an over 55 community. We decided that we were going to make this move to Phoenix because my father was ill with cancer. 
So we came over here to Phoenix and um, it was a very hard move because the judge, um, you know, my husband, ex-husband was not very, uh, he was not keen on me taking the children out of state. And so he had an emergency hearing and we had to do all this mediation. Anyways, fast forwarding a few months after um, that decision, we had to meet with the mediator and the mediator told me, she's like, well, you're not getting your children. And that was probably one of the worst moments of my entire sobriety because I love my kids. And that was the last thing I wanted was to leave them. But I really didn't have a choice. Um, I financially couldn't afford Los Angeles and that's where I was living. And my kids, you know, they had a home there. Their father had support with his family. I didn't have family there. I didn't have money. I didn't have any support. So anyways, fast forward, we had to move um, to Phoenix and the judge ruled that they stay behind, they stay with their father. And I would just have them fly out during holidays and summers and such. So that was a very hard pill to swallow. Um, it was very, very hard for me emotionally. Um, and, you know, I did have a talk with a friend and um, he basically said, Shannon, you need to get yourself happy and get yourself together because, um, and let, let the ex-husband do the hard stuff, but you focus on you. And, you know, that's a God moment because really what that did for me, it did help me focus on myself and it helped me get myself together after that divorce, because I was an emotional wreck from that. Mm -hmm. And, um, so God kind of like took my children out of the picture, had somebody else take care of them, even though I did still get to see them often. Um, and it allowed me to be by myself to um, learn about myself again. Thank you for sharing all of that, Shannon. <laughs> it really is such a blessing in our community that, that um, you know, the comfort with who we are and being, in, you know, that's what that practice of honesty allows us to just be in our own skin and really see the grace in our life. Um, so I really want to thank you for, you know, coming today and sharing all of this with us, um, giving, you know, me the chance to talk about sobriety and relationships just a little bit. I also want to thank Benny Mathers, who's our producer. And um, I want to just share, Shannon, if it's okay with you, your phone number in case anyone would like to get in touch with you, because you do work as a life coach and as a recovery companion. Um, Shannon's phone number is area code 619-751-9889. Um, and you can reach me at mercyburtonrussell at gmail.com or my website, leadershipwithmercy.com. So anyway, thank you again. Um, yeah, it's really been fun for me to have this chance to talk with you and to share your story. Yeah, thank you um, for having me.